Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. How is everybody doing today? Hello, this is Tom. Doing well. How is everyone? It's Deacon Dennis here. Glad to see you guys. So, you know, fellow Paulist Deacon affiliates, we've gone through six episodes so far, and it's starting to occur to me that I think I'm learning more than I thought I ever would from being on this podcast. I think back to our first interview with Kaya Oaks when we talked to her about her book, The Defiant Middle, how women claim life's in-betweens to remake the world. First of all, I have to say, I just find her to be such a fascinating writer. I still follow her writing. I know she's writing a book right now, and I can't wait for that to come out. But she has such an interesting take, which, you know, appears to be written for women. But when you stop and think about it, it's clearly written for men, too, to think about the traps that women have been forced to work their way out of as a result of everyone's expectations. And that book, her book, really helped me think through some of the ways that perhaps as a man, I should not react to women when they're telling me what their issues are, what their issues are, and what their problems are. What kind of reaction did, did you two guys get from that? Well, I was edified by it, no doubt. She's everything you said she was. I was uplifted, not only by her book or her work and her, you know, several books we touched on briefly. The other ones, The Nuns Were All Right, was the one I read, and Tom was the one you read. Radical reinvention. Radical reinvention. And just her personal story of her struggle with the church and the issues of the institutional church, I just thought was very helpful. And I just thought it was a real example, like our other guests, of what an adult faith looks like and how you have to negotiate an adult faith in an institution that's still working its way towards that, as opposed to a child, minor child relationship. Yeah, and I thought it was very, very good. And it's one of the one of the things that makes me proud to be Catholic is people like Kaya. You know, it's like this is worth the effort and and you look at the results in her life. I mean it's it's proved out. It's not just, well, some theory. And that's true of all our guests. You know, you say what you want about what's wrong with the church. Well, you know, these people are what's right with the church. They are the church. And I'm proud to be associated with them. And I think I'd be less of a person if I didn't know people like this, I have no doubt about that. So I thought Kaya was just outstanding in her service to elucidating all these neuralgic issues that the institution's going to negotiate. And of course, we don't shy away from that. That's not an adult thing to do to say that's not happening. It is happening. I thought it was just wonderful. And I picked up on, I think you led the question, Drew, and she, you asked about what signs of hope does she have for the future, it, it planted on that same ground of you know, the changes that are going on, the systemic changes and seismic changes about the male culture starting to understand and break open into the changes and the awareness of the role of women and the, the difficulties they've had within the church and in the secular world also. And it's nice to hear signs of hope that someone who's been through, again, I read the radical reinvention and she explains her reentry into the church and how good people have led her down that course and how her experiences have shaped a lot of her witness, which is a powerful thing, and how she has hope for the future. I think we're all looking to grab a straw of hope for the future. 
And I think we find it in our faith. That's why we stay here. That's why we keep coming back to find, to get away from the doom and gloom and to hear the message like from Francis and everybody, the, the gospel of joy, and to try and be a witness to it. Yeah, that's, I agree with that, Tom. And that ending, her book, ending on a note of hope like that, and she really articulated that as well when we interviewed her. But that's the kind of book that I recommend to young women that I run into, or even in my own family, who may not be, let's call it the way it is, who are unhappy with the way the church has gone in the last few years. And, you know, and sometimes when people say that to me, I I say the last few years, what about the last 2,000 years? I mean, you know, this is the Church of the Crusades. So the reference to Kaya Oaks is something that I often make to younger people, I think, who are struggling with some of these issues, because Kaya understood that, understands it, and offers a way out of it. And it's very adult, because, you know, her whole approach is not to lay blame. You know, she's very much saying this is, this is a dialogue situation, which, again, is very adult. It's like we have to work this through. We just can't be saying, well, it's all men and they're no good. And, you know, all. she said the exact opposite of that. And I thought that was very instructive for a lot of things, you know, we're dealing with in our society that we're going to get nowhere pointing fingers and blaming. We have to engage each other in dialogue, as Pope Francis is always saying, and accompany one another. The other thing I liked about Kaya and, and really, yeah, all of our guests is they all exercise, and I don't think they know it, they all exercise what I consider to be a prophetic vocation in the church, which is something that almost no one wants to do. And that's amazing. They're willing to suffer to make the church better. That's what prophets do. And we were all baptized prophets, as I mentioned in one of the pods. The old formulation is, you know, in the catechism was your baptized priest, prophet, and king. Most people say, nah, I'm out. I'm not going to be doing, I'm not doing that. I'm not suffering. I'm not, I'm not investing in this. No one's, you know, it's right up there in front, you know, take up your cross. We really have to talk about that sometimes that, you know, this is not an easy walk. That's not what you're signing up for. And a lot of people will say, not for me. I'm only here for the easy stuff. Well, good luck with that because that's not how life is. So I don't know how you're going to negotiate that. If you find out, please call me. I'd like to learn that. Yeah, so many of our guests, and we talked about that, also talk about the fact that, yeah, yes, they're suffering, but not for suffering's sake. You know, they only suffer because they choose to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Exactly. Um, No one, only a crazy person would say, you know, or somebody, I mean, I don't understand it. I don't enjoy suffering. Suffering for suffering's sake, you suffer for a greater good. You suffer as a soldier to serve the nation, keep the nation safe and free. You suffer as a policeman to keep your community free, you know, law officer or, you know, a firefighter or whatever, or, or someone in the church. Well, and someone, sometimes you suffer from the church. I mean, a lot of people have, but, you know, the, the cross is the cross, and some are heavier than others. But the thing is, Jesus didn't sugarcoat this. And it's like, you are signing up for a difficult task. And that's, a lot of people are going to say, I don't want it. And that's, that's their prerogative. They, them and God have to work that out. It's not my business. But they do it. And I find it extremely rare and very edifying that these people choose to do that, choose to, to take their baptismal vocation seriously and pay the price. Because the, the world doesn't get better if someone doesn't pay the price. If there's no one marching in Selma, if, if John Lewis isn't getting his head cracked, there's no voting rights. It's just not, I mean, unless you're living in a fairy tale. So God bless her, and I really thought she was a, a much better human than I am. I want to be like her someday. 
Well, isn't that the challenge we all face where uh, as we go through this experience, we're encountering really people who are long-term witnesses in the faith and have been delivering that message for, for years. And it's a, a great privilege to be able to, under the auspices of the Paulist Fathers, to be able to do this, to be connected in this day and age with tremendous people trying to share our faith. I was just thinking when you said that, we just interviewed Father Martin, and he does the Friday afternoon reflection on the gospel, and that was his message last Friday, Dennis. He, he talked about the vocation, and part of the vocation is the suffering that they encounter as priests, as religious, who've given and made sacrifices. And But it's done. It's not the, the world understands sacrifice to be a negative thing, and yet when you embrace it in the form of a vocation, you're rewarded in ways that are basically hard to for the world to understand the joys that come from the relationships and the experiences that you have in helping people, being with people in solidarity with people and expressing God's love. And, you know, as Francis says, the joy of the gospel and to be witnesses to that. So again, great people that we've had on and the great messages, especially in a time when people are confused and are trying to find happiness in the world. And good luck with that. You can with money, pleasure, power, authority, but I think the real wealth lies in relationships and all that encompasses. But I think, you know, I think one of the critical things here in all this is every person who has a child, let's make this simple, sacrifices. If you commit parenthood, it's, if you're lucky, it's only 20 years of hard labor. You know, you can have some of them on the payroll to their 40 these days. You know, I mean, it's a lot of giving up your time, your freedom, your money, all that. And people do that willingly by and large, I know there are exceptions, but most people are willing to make that sacrifice for their child. So the question really is not about sacrifice. The question is, what do you think is worth sacrificing for? That's what has to be wrestled with by all of us. And I really think that, you know, back to your first point, Tom, you know, if you, in a number of these episodes, people have talked about their affinity for the saints, and the whole idea we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, as the New Testament says, and we still are. See, that's what I think one of the things we're presenting to people today is that there's still a great cloud of witnesses right now. It's Correct. not just, well, that was in the New Testament. They're happening right now, and some of them live near you. And that's the whole idea of churches. You can be part of that. You can know them. You can let them help you grow. You can learn from them. You know, the thing is— to remember that joy is the ultimate goal and the ultimate way to be. I mean, and our our second guest, Fran Spilton, talked about that very clearly when she talked about, and Tom, you were just saying this too, intersection of faith and life. Her point was, it's not either faith or life, it's both, that the world is full of God and the world is full of God's glory. And so she approaches this thing, I think, a little bit differently. And she said, faith is not a separate thing for the holy, but is available for everybody and everything. For, for God is available in everything and for everybody. To which I would quote Jesus' words to this old woman, great is your faith. That's what it looks like when you really get it. And God bless her. And she, I hope more of us get to that point. She That's had a, wonderful. She had a great quote of her own. And I think this is pure Fran. Which she said, God has preposterous ideas. <laughs> yeah, we're here. In <laughs> <laughs> a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. So we get asked a question in the chat, if you look at that, guys. And the question is, the Smith family has been going to St. Mary's Church 
for generation. Two daughters in the parish in the family are ages 11 and 12. Their altar service, a new priest has arrived at a parish. And as indicated, girls and women will no longer be allowed to serve as oracolites. What should the Smith family do? Hmm. Who wants to put yeah. their hand in that noose? <laughs> put the thread through that needle. I'll go. I don't care. You know, I've I've had that situation with daughters, and the answer is you vote with your feet. Yeah. Because the system as it's currently constructed, that is your only alternative. So if you're lucky enough not to be in the middle of nowhere where the next Catholic church is 500 miles away, well, if you're somewhere where you can go somewhere else, I would absolutely have no problem telling people, you go parish shopping. God has given me three daughters to raise in the faith, and I'm happy to report that my adult daughters still go to church. And I don't know why, but I mean, it's, it's a grace. I would absolutely not let anyone tell them they're second-class citizen, some, some priest with a problem. Absolutely not. I would go somewhere where they would be affirmed. Nope. There's another, that, another practical solution, which you know people may not be comfortable with. And I think it depends as well on who their bishop is, because we all know that there are some bishops who would probably agree with this action taken against the Smith family. But there are many bishops who would not. And perhaps they should think about writing not an anonymous letter, which our church <laughs> seems to be famous for, but a letter saying, I am a parishioner at St. Mary's, and the new pastor has just said that my daughter cannot be an altar server. Bishop, can this be true? I think there's nothing wrong with doing that in an open and honest way. Absolutely. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Again, this is like the prophetic thing. Here's a small way to exercise your prophetic baptismal vocation. See something, say something. Find out the address of the chancery and a quick note, an email, whatever, to the pastor. A little bit about yourself, I mean, to the bishop. A little bit about yourself. I've been a parishioner at St. Mary's, my family, for generations, and this just happened. I am not happy. What can you do to help me with this? You know, your letter, and most people just, I'm not going to bother. They'll complain That's to right. the deacon. Everybody knows that, right, Deacons? That's we'll right. hear about it at the supermarket. They're not going to say anything to someone who can actually do anything. So that makes it your fault, at the, in my view, at that point. If you won't at least say, this is going on, you need to know this, and you need to know I'm not happy about it. And again, it may take you know 50 of those letters to move some bishops. But eventually, the file's going to be getting thick, and someone's going to say, you know, this guy's a problem, or this is an issue, or something which is kind of like what we're doing in the Synod. You know, all these things are surfacing that have been told, well, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about that. Well, they're talking about it. So now it's got to be addressed one way or another. So yes, I think Drew is absolutely right that that is absolutely what, even if you go parish shopping, a letter should be generated, an email, something to the powers that be and let them know what's going on. And that's a little bit of prophecy. It's a lot easier than marching in Selma, but you know, it all adds up. Right. That is this point in the past. That's the mature aspect of our faith. It's, this is how you confront difficulties. You don't just run and hide from them, which is the way. I mean, very appropriate to do that. And then get on your knees and pray that the bishop will respond and, and act in a, uh, a favorable ma- a manner to have, have the conversation with the pastor. So, but talking about overcoming all that, what about Judge Salas, huh? 
I'll lead with that. That's She was an exceptional guest. And when you talk about vulnerability and the true witness of our faith, she is just a, a woman of courage and of strong faith. And again, it's a faith that she developed. She came back into it. She was kind of a mediocre person and got back into the faith. And boy, the shows came through in a stellar way that she was able to even give her story. I was just enthralled with her courage and, and her witness. I think it came out in the in the podcast, I've known Judge Salas for quite a while, and I've had occasion to actually talk with her since our interview, and I just wanted to give an update. She has not slowed down in her zeal. In fact, I think she's looking to become more ministerial, perhaps. We can look to hear or see something from her in the future, maybe regarding retreats or conferences. Boy, she would be a—I can't imagine what a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday we treat on forgiveness would, would be with, with her. All right. All right. You know, this, what, you know, Judge Salas is an example of a lot of holy people. I don't think she knows she's holy, but sinners like me, we can spot them across the room. So I think that that is what a mature faith looks like. If you go back and listen to that episode, all you people that went to Catholic schools and like I did and all this other stuff, that's what's supposed to happen when the program actually works. That's supposed to be the end product. That's an adult person who has genuine religious experience of God, a sacramental awareness that she can find God in all things, and even forgive the murderer of her only son. You know, I mean, someone, a crazy person, came and killed him in the front door. And almost killed her husband at the same time. And she forgave that guy. She didn't want to, and she struggled with it. And, of course, she was filled with rage and anger. I don't blame her. That's not the mysterious part. The forgiveness the mysterious part. The rage and anger, we all, we get that. And she demonstrated that this stuff works. Because if you listen to the rest of it, she's telling you how by forgiving that murderer, she healed herself. She freed herself and her husband, who forgave the murderer even before she did. So the, this is quite a couple right here. They should be doing marriage. You know, there's something very spiritual going on when you get two people in the same household like that. So I just think she was just incredible. But she is an example of what's supposed to happen, what happens, you know, as they say in the 12-step programs, the program works if you work the program. And this is the same program everybody's being exposed to. This woman is not like friends with the Pope and, you know, grew up in a monastery. She worked the average Catholic program that was available to her growing up. And look at the results. This is incredible. But it shows it works, and it shows why it works, and it shows it also produces closeness to God and meaning in the midst of tragedy. It's, it's an unbelievable episode. And there was a part there that she had her priest that was a friend of hers come and celebrate the Eucharist at the house, and it was his homily that introduced her to this. So again, you have that dynamic of the faith being active and the sacramental aspect and God's grace being available through that to, to lead us to the hard decision. You know, we are all connected with one another, and I think the sacramental life is supposed to show us in a tangible way how that is supposed to work. After that episode hit, there was, and it got up on the Facebook page of the Paulist Fathers, one commenter said that he couldn't forgive 
like she did. Do you guys remember seeing that? Yes. I remember when I read it. And and, and that's a typical response. I mean, that's not an outlandish response. No, if you, he's right. If you try to put yourself in it. those shoes. But let me ask this question. The, obviously, Judge Salas has forgiven, as well as her husband, Mark. Is it possible to have that kind of radical forgiveness? And I'm not asking the question in a vacuum. I mean, she has done it, but is she the exception to the rule? Can no one else do it? What do you think? I, uh, I've got some knowledge of that. Connecticut had a horrific school shooting a while ago, 10 years, 12 years now. 26 people died. And another event that, because I traveled through Virginia to get to my son's house, was down in Pennsylvania, Nichols Mine, Pennsylvania, where school kids were killed, which has become such an ordinary event today. But in both cases, family members came out and on TV forgave the perpetrator. And what that did was it ended the story. The news media packed up their cameras and left. It was such a faux pas to the ordinary way of the anger and frustration that comes out that we see so often. So there are people who are able to do this. Now, in Pennsylvania, it was an Amish family, and they have a big commitment to that forgiveness because they do believe that they won't be forgiven unless they forgive. So that's a little bit more understandable. But it happened in Connecticut, too, where the family, the mother, came out and said, we choose love. We choose to get beyond this, just like Judge Salas, that in order to experience life, you have to be able to move on past this suffering. You carry it with you. But it can't, can't paralyze you. And I think that was a big part of, like you said, Drew, of Judge Salas' message. Right. Well, you know, Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr, tells a story of a Protestant family of missionaries in India. And one, I don't remember the whole story, but basically the father and the boys were killed. And so it's just the mother left. And the mother stayed in India, continued working, and appeared on Indian television and forgave the murderers. And People went crazy in, in India. They just couldn't believe this. And Father Rohr's assessment was that woman did more to promote Christianity in India than all the Jesuits that ever worked there. And I think the answer to the question for everybody is, just, could you do it? Is it normal? Is it just unbelievable? I think the answer is it can be done, but here's the trick, only with God's grace. I think that guy on Facebook is talking about reality. Like, this is crazy. A lot of stuff Jesus asks us to do is not normal. Not just in our society, but in any society that's ever heard this gospel. And the secret sauce is, with God's grace, you do stuff you can't believe you do. And again, also, uh, referencing back to, you know, the wisdom of the various 12-step programs, resentment and, and anger and vengeance, these are things that they say you have to let go if you want to get better. You are doing yourself a favor. You are the first beneficiary of forgiveness. Whether that person is sorry or not, knows about it or not, you know, think about it. Why, you know, they, they say resentment or anger or revenge or whatever you would be feeling in a terrible situation like this, they, they say, well, that's like drink, you drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. Like, this guy is out partying or whatever, couldn't care less, whatever, and your blood pressure's up, you've got an <laughs> ulcer, you're driving your family members away, 
And it's like, what are you doing to you? And so I think the first thing people overlook is that we benefit from forgiveness first, and most assuredly, whatever else the benefits may accrue to that. And the second thing is, no, you can't do it. You can't do a lot of this stuff Jesus talks about, only with the grace of God. And you have examples here of people with the grace of God, whether it's the Amish or the Newtown parents Tom was talking about, or whether it's Judge Salas, it's it's a real thing. It's not like we've never seen or heard this, but it's a choice. And you can't do your homework at the last minute. I would also point out all these people were practicing followers of Jesus. They were not someone who paid no attention, couldn't care less. And then at the last minute, once tragedy struck, they were able to come up with all this. So I, I do think, you know, you can't do your homework on the bus every day. So let me change it up a little bit. We had a really nice, very serious, but really nice talk with Father Stu, Father Stuart Wilson Smith of the Paulist Fathers. He's got such a great sense of humor, and he can have, and he can maintain that humor while talking about very serious subjects. And I just remember at the time, it struck me as something that I really wanted to just laugh out loud about, but, you know, I didn't get a chance. He said, not that this is a fault of mine, but I am Canadian, <laughs> which mm-hmm. to, to me is... You know, he also said he also said oot a lot. Oot, yeah. oot. But but one of the things in, in, in discussing these types of issues that he talked about, when we asked him about what do you say to people who are ready to step away from the church because of all the problems that they've experienced or observed, he said very clearly that he has no magic words of wisdom. What he does is just try to have relationship with that person, whoever they are, whether they're on the threshold coming in or on the threshold going out. That it's to him, it's all about relationship. He said that he had, he had another one of those quotable quotes. His eyes are beyond the pews. In other words, he's not just looking at what's happening right then and there during that sacramental moment, but he's thinking about what might be happening the next day or, or later that afternoon or outside the walls of the church, perhaps, is the way I took it. I, I just found his, his interview with us to be really enlightening. And again, he talked a, a little bit about, or a lot maybe, about mental illness and how we have to walk with those people. But I didn't walk away from that interview with him in a depressed state. I was happy. He made Father Stu made me happy. What, what about you guys? What did you think about him? Oh, yeah. And I just, let me go on record now, and, and you can put a pin in this recording. If Father Stu continues down the road of that ministry to the mentally ill, after we talked to him, I, I checked the magic light box, you know, the phone there. I, Google, I put on my Google machine, you know, and I looked at the Google machine and I said, what percentage of people in the United States suffer from mental illness? And it's, the answer was 26%, one in four adults. That's just the adults, I guess they checked. Now, there's only 23% of the population, the entire population is Roman Catholic. So that's the entire church in America. So more people than our Catholic, which is the biggest church in America still, 26% of people suffer from this disease, and who's ministering to them? So I just thought, you know, that's Holy Spirit stuff right there. If Father Stu, and and also Kaya mentioned her dealing with depression too. I thought that was interesting. Correct. The more this grows and people uh, people start to deal with it. So my prediction is, and I think Father Stu would be, absolutely the right person to do it with his demeanor and his pastoral manner. If, if, they, if they continue to follow this through, 
and develop some kind of outreach to the mentally ill, people dealing with mental problems, it's a huge group of people that are not being served. And it's just like, we don't even know this. We sweep it under the rug. It's 25%. Every fourth person you meet is wrestling with this. So I just thought that was just, and when I heard that, I was listening and I was thinking, this is how it happens. You know, it kind of reminded me of a Father Martin talking when we asked him about, well, how'd you get into the LGBT business? And he was like, oh, I, you know, I just kind of walked into that. I wasn't planning. This was not like something I worked out. And, you know, that's, we all know that's the Holy Spirit. So I, I really thought that Father Stu was delightful. And, of course, he is a missionary. He belongs to a missionary society, the Paulus, of missionaries to North America. And the definition of a missionary is someone who looks beyond the pews. Because people who just deal with people in the pews are what you call chaplains. Chaplains. I have a chapel. You remember the chapel. You come in. I take care of you. You go out, and I'm done. But it's the missionaries that are going out to the highways and the byways and inviting people in, and that's what the Paulists do. So I thought, well, he picked the right group to be in, that's for sure, with his eyes beyond the pews. So I just thought he was just, what a, what a lovely man. What a, just a... He, just a great. He's a great hang, isn't he? Wasn't he? He, wasn't he, really, he good. He really is. He he said another thing, which was a huge lesson for me, because when people talk about leaving the church, sometimes I am tempted to repeat what Peter said, and well, where else will you go? To whom else should we go? And Father Stu pointed out that when you say that to somebody, it makes no sense because that's somebody who's already been hurt by the very church or the very people in the church that you're trying to get that person to stay with. So rather than say that, he said, listening is better. Relationship is better. And then in a very Paulist way, he said, recognizing that the indwelling spirit is in that person as well as us and everybody else. And that unification of that spirit brings us together. And all we have to do is, not all we have to do, but what maybe we have to do more than anything is to listen understand and walk with that person. And we've all had this, you know, when you go to a funeral and someone is really upset about the death of someone, that's not the time. No, to absolutely. Quote the, to quote the catechism. I mean, we're all smart enough to know that. I, at least the three of us are. Not everybody is, unfortunately. But well, right you then, two, you two so, are. You two are. Yeah, Give it to you. Uh, yeah, yeah, Preach yeah. to me. Preach to you. Okay. But, but you they, know, he you comes know. across, too, so well in the, uh, the human part that brings that relationship to be his vulnerability, his willingness to share. You don't mm-hmm. hold back. You're yep. not putting that mask on. Bingo. You're not trying to say I'm beyond the reality. Uh, I, that's such a... But I think this goes to Francis's uh, recommendation of accompaniment. I agree with what you're saying, Tom. But I think what I got from Stu, and I thought about this, because first of all, it rang the bell of like, yeah, like, like when you're in the funeral parlor, you don't start... That's not what people, they they can't process it. They don't want to hear it. If they're angry with God, whatever, that's all part of the journey. And so you have that relationship, that accompaniment he's talking about. At that point, you put your arm around them. You cry with them. You know, I mean, that's all you can do. There are no words that are going to make this better. So you're a fool to even try. And at that point, they're not ready to hear any of it. But, and this is the thing I think he was pointing us to, you maintain that relationship, you accompany them. Later on, as the relationship goes on, there will be a time when they are ready to say, so how can God let my child die? Yes, or, yes. or how can I have mental illness? Or whatever it is you're dealing with or, or why they're leaving the church. And then you, 
you can get into some stuff and you might even at some point say, if not just quoting the to whom shall we go verse, you might say, well, if you know a perfect place, take me there because, you know, this planet is, is a hot mess. It's like there's no place we can go where we're not going to have issues and problems. It's just just doesn't exist. That's the kingdom. It's not fully realized yet. So I think that it was interesting that he was pointing us to, in the context of an ongoing accompaniment relationship, there would be a time when you could have those kinds of conversations when things weren't so raw, and you would also have the relationship with which to have that. I don't think you can be an outsider and say, well, let me read the catechism to you over your mother's body or whatever you're talking about. It's just... It's insensitive, you know? And, so I thought it was very very pastorally brilliant what he was suggesting, exactly. and I don't think he even knew it. From, from it was, his own personal experience. And right. that's, I think, the vulnerability. We're, we're, uh, you know, we hear a lot of stuff, sure, it's about clericalism and, and that today, but it's pretty easy to see the real ones who are genuine, and I think that's the key factor for that quality. Somebody who's genuine, who's really there and who's doing the good Lord's work of building that relationship, building that fundamental experience to bring us closer to God, not to closer to him, but building us uh, and bringing us into God's relationship. What episode was it where we established they're not all jerks? <laughs> Remember that one? <laughs> the boy set the bar right on the ground. Like, you know, there were good priests, there are good deacons. I mean, there's some real winners out there, but you know, they're not all jerks. I, mean, I don't remember where that was, but that's kind of the... Well, talking about genuine people, it's great transition. What about the Daughters of Charity? What about them? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope I can listening. see them across the peninsula here. They're across the side. Yeah. I can see Bronzeville, Texas from uh, here. I hope they're yeah, listening wait, wait, because wait that should sisters. make them laugh, hopefully. Uh, yeah, no, they're genuine, great, great, genuine great sisters, huh? Yes, yeah. wonderful they, uh, people. I mean, and talking, and Tom, just what you said, they're doing, just walking with the people and doing the work of God. I mean, that's what they do all day long. And yet they get on, they have time to get on with us for about an hour and, and just be uplifting and, and happy and joyful. I mean, to me, joy is, is just so important. Yeah, I think uh, Francis wrote an article so that was in NCR last week about the Catholics can't go backwards, right? And that's the whole thing. The gospel of joy. We have to witness this. This is we're not genuine unless we're we're living a faith that is able to be in the world, be challenged by the world, but be grounded in a spirituality that lifts our minds up to higher levels, to the transcendental. I remember going over to Ireland and hearing some of the history and seeing the old castles that were burnt all and destroyed. And the guy who was our tour guide talked about how the fifteenth century comes along and they start building these spires up pointing to God because Human nature needs to look up. It needs, there's more than this. I mean, you're on the Eat Dirt and Die program back then, the Black Plague and all that came along. And so what happens when Europe's being rebuilt? They built these physical buildings uh, with a tremendous amount of labor, and these spires rise, uh, point to the, to, the, uh, to the heavens to let us know that there's, you know, there's more to life than what we're seeing here. And when you get involved with, again, many of our guests, that whole inspiration that comes from there is more. And the more it's centered in on relationship, it's centered in on these uh, quality things that really are, they're not tangible. It's relationship, it's joy and happiness in, in how we're experiencing life today. And even St. Francis, The Perfect Joy of St. Francis, one of the books, talked about this ability to incorporate suffering and to be able to know that there is more and just the suffering, and to offer it up and to be able to experience joy in that state is, is truly amazing. 
And I've got a, a, a relative, mother-in-law, that's been blind for many years. She's crippled. She's now in the hospital recovering from a ro- broken hip. And to hear her laugh, I go into the room and I hear her laughing. And boy, I said, I got to take some, whatever drug she's on, I need some of that because she is a person <laughs> filled with joy. It's not drugs. She's <laughs> filled with joy. I know who she is. Uh, no, that's but you joke. know her, Dennis. She's, um, I do. She is Tootie's just, uh, great. Yeah, person. she's just great. You know, but we open this up. I open this up talking about the Daughters of Charity and the two sisters. Who are they? Dennis, remind us who in the, we talked in the, to. Well, they're, yeah, let's plug there. It was, it's a good podcast. It's really good for all the reasons we liked it. We say we like it. If you missed that episode, please go listen to it. It's called In the Company of Charity, which is the name of their podcast, In the Company of Charity. And it's the Daughters of Charity. And they're a 400-year-old Society of Apostolic Life. That was founded by St. Vincent de Paul, and they really work in difficult situations. They are in tragedy pretty much all day long. They're dealing, they're on the, Sister Liz, we talked to, was on the border. She's a social worker in Brownsville, Texas, which is right up against Mexico. And Sister Elizabeth is, I think she was in St. Louis, wasn't right, she? Right. Yeah. And, you know, they're social workers. They're, they're whatever, nurses. They're, they're, they run hospitals. They, you know, they're just really dealing with, and, they, and their, their focus is the poorest of the poor. That's who they work with. So unrepresented people, right? <laughs> right. So they, they have, you know, they're very good on the downward mobility as opposed to most people's preference for upward mobility. And again, they laugh all the time. You listen to them on their podcast. These are joyful people. How can your life be going in and dealing with some of the worst stuff there is on a daily basis and finding joy? Well, that's the grace. That's, that's God. That's what it is. And, and I think too- Sister Liz said it perfectly. She said, we do this because we expect the person that we meet is Jesus Christ. So the person coming in the door in his broken body or mind is they, they realize they have an encounter with Christ. Yeah, and she also said that, you know, she summed up a great thing, I thought, too. She, I don't know which one said it. It might have been Sister Elizabeth. But anyways, I think it was Sister Liz. But she said that in their work, what they kind of see is that the people they're dealing with pretty much on the bottom of society. There is a crisis of meaning. And there are two questions, as she put it, was, one, am I loved? And two, do I have a purpose? And she said, our answer to that in our work is yes and yes. You are loved and you do have a purpose. And she talks about, again, the accompaniment the living with these people, the walking with them. It's not here today, gone tomorrow, parachute in, you know. It's one of the great things about the church, by the way, that, you know, no one ever talks about, and these women are a good example of it. You have NGOs and stuff around the world, and there's a crisis, and they come in, they do their thing, they do good work. I'm not saying they don't. Good, God bless them. And then they're gone. They move on. The church is there. It was there before the tsunami. It's there after the tsunami. And they accompany the people, they know the players. They know, oh, no, don't give the money to that guy. We know, we know him. Give it to this person, you know, that kind of thing. And that's why you know, Catholic Relief Services does so much with so little. But this is accompaniment is what I'm saying. This is, you can't get this by bringing, you know, parachuting your expertise in for a period of time and then leaving. It's the trust that's built with people over time. So, you know, the Daughters of Charity, 
God bless them, you know. Um, and again, when the Casey's were poor, as I recall, Tom, you yeah. know the story about your grandfather <laughs> with the daughters of charity? Yeah. These yeah. are the flying nuns, by the, the way. The, fly- the, the, the people who remember the old TV show with the, the little nun with the big yeah. coronet, the big habit hat there thing, looked like wings and... And then, you know, it was a comedy. And in the show, she could actually fly, fly. you know, <laughs> with these, these wings because she was so small. You probably see it on YouTube today. But she was guess, doing good stuff even in the TV show. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But that's the Daughters of Charity. And, Tom, you, you had a family story about that, too. Yeah. They, yeah. Back in the day, my grandfather was visited by the Sisters of Charity in, in Bridgeport. I don't remember them coming to the house, but I do remember years later driving by and seeing some of the sisters walking down the street and my parents calling attention to, well, there's the nuns that took care of grandpa for a while. So, yeah, long-term. Other, so, again, not, not a flash in the pan, like you said, Dennis. Vincentians, 400 years ago, they were yeah. taking care of the poorest of the poor. And, Drew, do you remember the thing they were talking about, you know, speaking of this, you know, how do they find this joy in the tragedy? And and the connection I make with that is the thing they were talking about, apostolic reflection. Do you remember them talking about that? Yes, I do. I'm sorry. It's it's my it's among yeah. it's my training to just answer the question that's asked. <laughs> You're not in court. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When they talk about you know, yes, I remember them talking about it. I can't rephrase exactly. I don't want to rephrase what they said, but they talked about how everything at the end of the day gives them the opportunity to reflect on where they've been and what they've done and who they've met and how that person reflected Christ. Because I found it so much like the examine that Father Martin talks about at at the end of the night. Uh, And it's such an important part of, I think, so many people's prayer and the people who are looking to have some type of prayer could, and not to mix too many of our episodes together as mixing a metaphor, learning to pray, the relatively new book by Father Martin, talks about all this, but the sisters, uh, the daughters of charity and the two sisters we spoke to, Sister Liz and Sister Elizabeth, both talked about at length their practice of, of apostolic reflection at the end of each night, or at the end, right before they go to bed, I guess. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think Sister Elizabeth talked about doing it in the morning sometimes, or right. stopping at noon to do it. I, I think right. she did it throughout the day. Right. And it's, a, you know, it's a, the thing to me where this, I think, is of interest to the listeners is what this represents, whether it's St. Ignatius Loyola 400 years ago or this more recent kind of same lady, different dress thing, apostolic reflection, is turning away from this cramped idea that God is up there, out there, and I got to go to some special place to find him, a church or whatever, and that God is everywhere, as the catechism told you, whatever version you had, however old you are. And that, as Richard Brewer said once, uh, I thought was very fascinating, he says, God comes to you disguised as your life. God comes to you disguised as your life, which is taking the incarnation. God became one of us, and he's still one of us. He didn't drop the body. Remember, it was risen and, you know, ascended and all that stuff. He's still in the human club as we speak, that God, taking that seriously, we should be able to find God in our work, in our ministry, in our families. And so shifting the focus to a bigger venue to look for God in the everyday, you're much more likely to, to find them. So, I, and I just, I, again, the proof is in the pudding. These women are laughing while they deal with stuff that most people just want to look away with and pretend isn't there. And we talk about how similar so many of these spiritualities are. To bring it back to the Paulist spirituality, God is everywhere, apostolic reflection, 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We must never forget that the Spirit lives within us. The source of all joy is, in my particular humble, maybe not so humble, opinion. So, and you know, the grace, I think, is from Sister Liz and Sister Elizabeth in their our conversation with them, is intellectually we know that Christ is, is, ever, is in each, each one of us. So I wonder how, what exercise we could do to recognize even those people we disagree with who aren't part of our ilk or, you know, we challenge to be able to be mindful that the same spirit of the loving God is in that person that is in me, even in my enemies. And I think that's a hard nut to swallow to recognize that because we're so divisive today. We could, we could just quote Fran again, Fran Rossi Spilson, and say, everyone is welcome. There's an old hymn that I love, and I know the old hymns are going out of style in some places, but all are welcome, all are welcome in this place. I love yes, it when we it? sing that when we walk into church, and I'm yeah. holding the gospel book up. All are yeah. welcome. Yeah. 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 And, and Fran was great. You know, her, her story was uplifting. Another person who's found the pearl of great price and has paid, has paid a price. Let's be honest, she's sacrificed for the joy she has found. And, of course, Father Jim Martin, we didn't even talk about him. So all, all our guests have just been absolutely outstanding and tremendous. And we just— You know, we didn't talk about Father Martin because I just wanted to say one thing about Father Jim. We mentioned in the interview with him— and and if you follow anything in, in social media or Catholic meat press or anything at all, as popular as Father Martin is, he has detractors who, and I think my opinion, and I think you two share this, his detractors are off base. They, 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 they detract from him in a way that they don't, honestly, I hate to say it like this, but they don't know what they're talking about. But despite all that controversy that sometimes surrounds him, he was so gracious and so open, and so willing to talk about that and everything else that we posed to him. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. was just, you know, blown away by the way he took our questions and and answered them from the heart. Yeah, I think he can forgive his enemies. <laughs> I, think I think it's another can. instance of yeah. it. You know, I mean, he's I, being constantly attacked, and his controversial book was. You have to be nice when you talk to gay people. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. That's the on. whole book. I just saved you the money. It's, you know, and it's like, you're this, you're that, and the Pope, this, and he's quoting the catechism, and these people don't care. And the Pope's got his arm around him in pictures saying, keep going, Jimbo, yeah. doing a great job. But these people don't care. So Jim's just like, well, you know, you got to follow Jesus. You better look good on wood, as Dan Berrigan used to say. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, the cross is part of it. And you see it's a small—it's not like Judge Salas and her son's murder, but it's another example we can all learn from of you're, you're going to take the hits. The gospel is controversial, only if you live it. Now, if you just talk about it, people in one ear and out the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you actually decide to say, I'm actually going to try to do some of this stuff, you will get pushback. I don't care how small, whatever, your family, whatever. Just tell your family, you know, I'm thinking of going to prison ministry. I think I'm going to do that. Just t- drop that at the dinner table and see what happens. See if they all get up and applaud you. You know what I mean? Uh, all the people that go to church, too. See if they applaud you. You know what I mean? So I just find it another example of forgiveness of enemies. And again, that is grace. That is not a one-night thing. There's a lot of 
you know, spirituality beneath that and a lot of, you know, denying the ego and all these other things. This is someone who has been doing his homework and just a lovely man. Just really, and I can't believe he would have anything to do with us. (laughs) Well, you know, there were on our, on again, on the Paulist Facebook page, there were so many negative comments about uh, the fact that we had him on. And I just, you two, please tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I have a feeling they didn't listen. They just didn't listen, and they haven't read his book because well, they didn't, they didn't as you read said, his book. Yeah, as you no, said, Dennis, if if you read the book, the book does nothing but reinforce Jesus's call to love everyone. All yep. are welcome. All are which welcome. part of every, which part of everyone are you having a problem with? Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, how about my enemies? Oh, you think they're your enemies? What's yeah. he say about that, Tom? Well, What's Jesus say about your enemies? Broken. What are you supposed to do with them? <laughs> Love them, right? Oh, yeah, love them. Oh, so it's the same program. Whether you like them, whether you don't like them, the answer is the same. It's real easy to understand. It's not easy to do. And the resentment is when someone does it. But see, I think we go back to that tribal mindset that they are different. And, you know, in our case with uh, Father Jim, you have this mindset that Scripture says that this is the way we should act, that we shouldn't be forgiving of them. And uh, Walter Brueggemann on the outreach that Father Jim started, explaining some of the scriptural references and how to look through it, look at those through the, the lens of our uh, current station. But again, Father Jim was asking for respect, compassion, and sensitivity. And if that isn't um, the not essence, even, oh, not even for everybody. himself, not, not even yeah, for himself. No, that's right. I'll take the beat down. He's saying. And I think it was the Pulse. He think he said it was the Pulse nightclub massacre down here in Florida. That just rose right. him the up Pulse to, to take it, yeah. yeah, to 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 become active. So he was activated in this ministry because of a huge tragedy, a response in faith. And I think you know, there's the interplay of life, the intersection of life and, and spirituality. When life presents something before you, and the Holy Spirit says you need to act, and I think he was he was very forthcoming and saying that's kind of what motivated him. And I think everyone of our listeners who's going through events. In their lives, you look at them through a filter or a spiritual filter, and maybe the good Lord is asking you to do something that, again, only you can do. That's the gift that we have. God has a plan well, for each one of us that he wants us well, to Well, the, the question is, even those people who know the catechism or, or went to school or, you know, whatever, know theology, are you going to practice it? Are you going to do the spiritual stuff? Are you going to watch your mind and watch your thoughts and think about, well, where is this coming from? And why did I do that? I mean, are you going to do the spiritual practices or are you not? Because at the end of the day, if you don't do the spiritual practices, you don't get better. It doesn't matter. The devil knows more theology than I do, than you do, than Father Martin does. It's not doing him any good. It's not a matter of being smart. But listen, guys, we, we got a question on the chat here saying, what's the number one thing that surprised you about doing this podcast? And the other one is, what's the number one thing you love about this podcast? Ooh, who wants to pick one of those? Well, what do we love about this? The chance to express our faith in everyday matters as we have these wonderful guests come on and see how faith has touched their lives and now their lives are now reaching out and touching others as we work together in what we believe is our community of faith, which is now virtual through the wonderful technology of podcasts. But I'm just, again, overwhelmed at the quality of people in their faith, in their witness. And like you said, we can't hold a candlestick to what they've done in their life. They're doing great things, and they're promoting it. They have the ability to go out and just 
push forward in the darkness and to be the light. And again, I think that on the other hand is the hope of the world that we're, we're surrounded by good people and we're blessed to be able to see them. And our challenge, I think, is to to be good people ourselves and to touch those people the good Lord is sending us to in our ministries, in our activities, in our daily life. One is not separated from the other. We're, we're, we're fully integrated people and every portion of our life is given over toward accepting God's will and acting upon it. What about you, Drew? What I love about doing this podcast is the same thing I love about doing ministry in general, that I get to witness God in action, that I get to see the Holy Spirit in the face of the people that I minister to. So when we have the guest on and I listen to the two of you talk, I know that God is in the room. Now, is God in the room whether or not we have a podcast? Of course. But actually doing it brings it home to me. And so, again, maybe this is selfish, but I certainly get a lot more out of it than I perceive that I give. So that's what I love about doing this podcast. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. You know, this is, again, that cloud of witnesses is still ongoing. There are still saints among us. There are still good people, holy people. And I just, you know, if you have the eyes to see it, which is a grace, too, to be able to even care about this, I just find it so helpful to me personally to clean up my act, to take the next step, to be a better person. And, you know, it's interesting, the number of these people have mentioned their affinity for the saints, now, Jim Martin wrote a book, My Life with the Saints, so we know he was one of them. Who was the other guest who was, well, it was Fran, when she was talking about when she was out of the church, she still had her saints. Yeah, the, Blessed the, the Andre, who, yeah. Right, who actually, she says, do you know him? Like, do I know him? I know where he stayed when he was in Moosup, Connecticut. Yeah, he I lived to, in he had family. That's right, I know you did. <laughs> and he, he had the family from Quebec that, you, that came down to work in the factories in New England, and he used to come down to visit him in the summertime on his vacation, so he was in our diocese. We didn't know at the time we had a saint among us, but, you know, so that's how it Andre. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, it's, I just find it just tremendously uplifting. And my hope is it's uplifting for, for other people, you know, I, the, the people that are listening. That's my hope for this. That's why we're doing this. I, I mean, we're, we're certainly getting a lot out of it. I am. And we've all said we are. But we're hoping that this will uplift people and spiritually nourish people to take advantage of their faith and to grow in it, and not just to be passive, but to be active like they are in other parts of their lives as adults, to go out and find the resources. If your parish is no good for whatever reason, then go on the Google machine and Google some other parishes. Go visit. If you can't find any of that, go Google some religious communities of sisters, of brothers, of priests. Most of them, if not all of them, have lay groups. Maybe you got to come, go, you know, come in the side door there. Go to your local university. Maybe the Newman ministry there, the, the masses and the, the chaplains at the college would be more to your taste. I don't care what you do, but you've got to be an agent of your own spiritual growth. That's what being an adult is. Some of this shows you that, you know, there's gold in them, our hills. These people are real. The saints were not long ago and far away. They are now, and you can be part of it. You can be one of them. That's my hope. I don't know what you guys are hoping for, but I'm hoping that in some small way, someone gets some of that and realizes that, that there are places to be fed and, and places to grow and places to be welcomed. I would like to just remind everyone that if there's anything that we say that raises a question, we do have a website you can go to. Deaconspod.com will get you to our website. website. It's easy. Deacon with an S, pod, 
all one word, dot com. And there is a form, and we would love to hear from you and help us make this better and, and, and give you what you need instead of what we think you need. It's been a joy speaking with the two of you again. And I hope you have a great week until I see you again. Yes, indeed, Drew. And keep that the workforce going because us retired guys, we forget the routine. So That's right. Keep um, paying them taxes. <laughs> Casey and I are having a good time. So let me just leave, leave you with, the, with this. We talked about this, guys. This is a prayer, and it was written by Bishop Ken Utner of Saginaw, Michigan. I think it has a lot to do with summing up all the things we've been talking about because it talks about the big picture of this filling the mission of Jesus, which is what the church is about as we go towards the kingdom. And here's what, here's what Bishop Utner wrote. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom's always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. That is what we are about. We plant the seed that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Can I get an amen? Amen, yeah. That's always been a beautiful prayer. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time. <laughs>